0: Hey, good morning. Uh, gosh, last week, it was nice to have a week off to just sit here and get yelled at by Craig for about 45 minutes, but I am really, really glad to be back. I, I just got to tell you guys, like, I love getting to do what I do. I love that I get to speak to you every week and that God allows me the opportunity to sit in his word, and, and this week is even more precious because it's like the Super Bowl week of the church, Right? If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, like Paul said, none of this matters, but he did. And that is the thought process all week long as we lead up into Easter. I am just really excited about the opportunity to get to um, worship with you right now all week long, Good Friday into Easter. And like Christian said, um, by the grace of God, we are going to be outside and it's not going to be like negative 24 degrees because somebody lied and told us. Somebody told me today, I think Easter's on break. Or no, I'm sorry, spring's on break. I didn't even hit that one right. Um, there you go. No more jokes. All right, if you have a Bible, so 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to jump back into the book of 2 Timothy. And as you guys know, we're going to be in this book through the whole summer. Um, so 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to look starting in, I think, verse 14. So if you want to grab your Bible, if you have one of our 2 Timothy journals, Uh, Meet us there. If you don't have one of those journals, I think we have a few extra that we could give you, okay? Hey, two weeks ago, I decided to do a social experiment on social media, which can be dangerous, but I wanted to see uh, how many people responded to a post that I would write. So I did two posts. The first one was non-controversial. It was a Bible scripture, something like John 3.16, because, I mean, who doesn't like John 3.16? Tim Tebow likes John 316. The guy at every sporting event holding the sign likes John 316. The guy at every sporting event with a bullhorn telling you you're going to hell likes John 316. Everybody likes John 316, right? Everybody except everybody on social media because nobody said anything at all. I got like two thumbs up. Then I decided to post something a little more controversial. I posted this, quote, apparently I'm the only person on the planet that didn't watch the Oscars. Y'all, you would have thought I slapped somebody's mama in the face because everybody in the world came out to tell me that they didn't watch the Oscars too. Because apparently watching the Oscars is bad for your reputation. The reality is, the reality is that everybody loves a good controversy. And this this is proven true. Fighting cells... Because it gets you all hyped up, like you're on Mountain Dew or something. Like everybody wants to get in there and fight against one another. Everybody knows this. That's why they all try to create controversial posts on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever the next thing is. And because we know that if you can get people to talk about what they are against, well, then you can get people all hyped up. Sometimes the best thing you can do if you want to grow a following is be controversial. I heard this last week. The greatest political strategy in the world is to not waste a good controversy. Forbes Magazine says that controversy boosts sales in almost every organization because you can manipulate people into buying what you are selling by creating a controversial ad. Y'all, sometimes, again, being the person who is against the next cultural fad, the big cultural idea, puts you in a place that you can grow a following. I'm just telling you, if you want to grow a following on social media, be that guy. That guy that, that has to talk about every issue under the sun. Maybe it's the next race issue where we have an acronym for whatever letter development we want to put there, a political issue, or whatever thing you want to put out there that culture is touting at the time, what you'll find is that somebody will get behind you. You can comment on anything and the comments will start flowing like wine or if you're Baptist grape juice, whatever floats your boat. The reason is, is that we do this because we want to feel like, watch this, that we don't belong to something. That's really important. You catch what I'm saying? It's more about saying we aren't for that than we are for that. When we talk about what we're not for, when we become the anti-guy, well, we always feel like we have the moral high ground. So when we do that, we, we become the anti, I'm anti this or I'm anti that. You actually find that you, get, you create a bigger following by being the anti-guy than by being the guy who's always championing everything around them. But here's the thing. God cares way more about what we are for than telling people what we are against. That's where we're going today. I want you to see that in the first two chapters of 2 Timothy... That Paul is creating the groundwork to begin to shape a group of people who will become the church that will create a culture that should spread for generations about what we are for. Guys, the greatest evangelistic strategy that ever existed, according to people like Rodney Stark, the great historian, was not creating platforms to tell people that we're against this and against this and against this, but it was actually loving people well, in the middle of their battle. The reason why social media is such a powerful tool is because it shapes people in all of the wrong ways. I love the way that Craig came up here and said it last week. He said, listen to what he says. He says, bad theology creates bad culture. Now let me say this. I think that bad character kills churches. It's a cancer that slowly infiltrates every aspect of our lives and it spreads to a point where it destroys a culture quicker than it builds one. That's why social media works. Social media gives you a microphone that is so powerful because it's fueled by negativism and conspiracies and it becomes a cancer which little by little builds a crowd and it creates an ego in us because we like the endorphins that happen to us when people like the posts that we put out there and we see that it continues to fuel in us a following, but what it does is it shapes an us versus them culture, and it kills the church. The second Timothy section that we are going to look at, I want you to see it shows a different way, a way that will build something bigger and better. Check it out, verse 14. Remind them, Paul says, of these things, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. All right, before we jump in, let's do a little bit of good Bible work here because I think that it's really important to understand some things. Paul says first to remind them, well, who are they, right? We make the assumption, who is Paul saying to remind them? Who are the them? Well, look at this. Back with me. I'll put them on the screen. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, remember what Paul tells them, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust two faithful men. There's the them, by the way. Men there isn't just men, it's people, you know, we can say this in our culture. Hey, hey tell, tell those dudes, or, you know, we can refer to a whole, whole group of people. Paul is doing that. So you can say people there instead of men who will teach others also. 2 Timothy 2.10, therefore I endure everything, Paul says, for the sake of the elect. There it is. That's the them, the elect, the, the believers, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The them there is the church. They are the people who have heard the word who believe the gospel and they teach others also. Why is that important? Check this out. The them is you and I. So you can almost replace remind them to remind them. All right, this is for us. Remind them, remind them of this stuff. This is super important. If you're a Christ follower, Paul says, we need to remind each other. We need to remind each other of this. Listen, I'm just telling you. I'm telling you, the greatest attacks on the church are not out there. I will beat this drum for the rest of my life. As much as we like to talk about culture, it doesn't really matter. The greatest attacks of the church are in this room. It really doesn't matter what culture says on a daily basis. It doesn't matter what Disney got caught saying in a boardroom as if you didn't already know what Disney believes. Like, who cares? Y'all, what matters is when culture begins to fracture, and it will, I promise you, it's going to become so dumb that all of us are going to be like, yeah, we can't go along with that anymore. When culture begins to fracture and they look back at the church, what do they see? Do they see a church that's fractured, that's always arguing, that's always critiquing, that's always about what we're not for? Or do they see a church that's loving and ready to bring in and embrace and build a better culture? That's what built the church for generations, for millennia. And that's what will build the church today. The problem is, is we bought into the lie that we need to be more about what we're against than what we're for. Here's Paul's point. The greatest evangelistic tool that the world will ever see is a healthy, loving church who bases its ethic off the Bible, not off of culture. Let me say it this way. If the church will stop worrying about what everybody else is doing and focus on being like Jesus, then when the world falls apart, it will find something beautiful. It will find something better. All right, look at verse 14 again. Remind them of these things and charge them before God. Not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers, so we know who they are. Now, what are these things? Right? Naturally, you should. Well, grab your Bible in your hand. I want to show you something. In the most immediate context, if you look at verse 14, right above that, does your Bible have verse 12 and 13? It should. Is verse 12 and 13, doesn't it look different than the rest of them? The reason why is most of the Second Timothy is in prose, meaning it's in paragraph form, and this is different because this is a quotation or it's a, it's a poem. Essentially, Paul is telling them uh, in its most immediate context to remind them of this poem, this saying. Remember the saying, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things. That's what Paul saying. Remind them of the gospel. That's what these things are. It's the gospel. Remind them of the gospel. Now, we need to take note of this before God. That's important. Paul says, remind them in God's presence. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. Your words matter so much that Paul says, no, don't just say it in private. Remind them in public before God. Take note of this, what we say has major influence over what people believe, so we need to make a big deal out of being wise with our words. Y'all, your words are powerful. Words make sentences that actually change the trajectory of people's thoughts and lives. All right, now this, being against something will only get you so far. It's only when you know what you are for that the heart will change. You know, that's why legalism doesn't work. When I hear pastors say something like, just stop sinning, and their fear tactics, if if you keep doing this, you're gonna go to hell or whatever else, you know, that might work for a little while, but fear is a terrible motivator. It is a terrible motivator. I've been told many times, if you want to overcome sin, just stop doing it, but that's not how it works. If you wanna overcome sin, what you need to do is you need to be attracted to something greater. I've heard this story, maybe you have, whenever a bank is trying to teach somebody how to spot a counterfeit $100 bill, you know what they tell them? Never look at the counterfeit. Get really, really familiar with the real thing because when you know the real thing, you'll be able to spot a counterfeit. It's the same idea. It's the same idea over and over again. You hear what I'm saying? It's it's like like this, by the way. Like Like my selfish kids, and they are because we are naturally all that way, we always do the thing we want to do. Don't kid yourself right? If you really want to play golf, you'll find time to play golf. If you want to go on a run, you'll find time to go on a run. You're never too busy to do the things you really want to do. I tell our staff this all the time. The reason why people don't want to do something is not because they're too busy to do it. They just don't find enough value in it to make the time to do it. Listen, the same thing's true in a negative way. If you really wanted to watch that stuff, you will find a way to watch that stuff. The question is, is what are we attracted to most? What are we attracted to most? If you want to walk with Jesus, you don't really need to focus on hating the sin. You need to focus on loving Jesus. Again, I've told you this before. The Puritans, they called this the explosive power of a new affection. Hey, that's what they mean. It's like, hey, I'll give you an example of this, okay? Um, little Johnny. Little Johnny, 17-year-old Johnny is hanging out with 17-year-old Emily, and it's just the two of them by themselves hanging out, right? Little Johnny's head starts going where 17-year-old little Johnny's heads normally start to go, And if you don't know where that's at, Clayton Feltz actually just started as our new associate pastor last week, and he thinks that his greatest joy would be to explain to you where little Johnny's head goes at 17-year-old whenever that happens. All right? So little Johnny, he's hanging out, just the two of them, and he thinks there's no way that I would ever be able to stop myself from doing what I want to do as little Johnny. Fair. Until six-foot-four Navy SEAL Big Daddy comes in holding ak 47 What does little Johnny no longer think about? He no longer thinks about Emily. Why? Because he has the explosive power of a new affection, right? Little Johnny likes little Johnny's life a lot more than he likes little Emily. So what he needs to do in order to turn that off is direct his gaze at daddy. And then he stops directing his gaze over here. That's how it works. That's how it works in every world and every sphere of our life. If you want to stop walking in sin, watch this, and this is so important. Stop focusing on the sin. Start falling in love with Jesus. Actively falling in love with Jesus, and you stop wanting to do that stuff. That's Paul's point. Remind them of the gospel. Remind them of the gospel. Over and over and over again, remind them of the gospel. Listen, if we are reminding people of the gospel, the gospel that Jesus loved you, he loved you so much that he died for you, Stop beating people with a stick and give them Jesus and watch what happens in their lives. Now watch this. Timothy was supposed to remind them of the gospel. Here's the point. He wasn't supposed to make up stuff. You, you get this, right? Like, nobody cares about your opinion. I just want to tell you, like, you don't care about my opinion. Paul was telling Timothy, you're supposed to teach people exactly what I taught you because as you teach them what I taught you, I taught you exactly what Jesus told me to tell you and therefore what we are is we're giving people more of Jesus and not more of our opinions and Jesus is what changes your heart. See, if the church is going to love Jesus, we need to be reminded of the gospel over and over and over again. We need to remember what we are for more than what we're against and one of the best ways to do that is not just to show up here on Sundays. It's to get in a small group. It's to get connected. It's to have your primary community, gospel people, so that when we're struggling, we can remind each other of Jesus. So remember, remember the foundation of your faith. Can I just remember, remind you of a couple of things that Paul says already in 2 Timothy? Listen to this. Even when you are faithless, God remains faithful. How beautiful is that promise? Remember that it's all about Jesus, who didn't come to divide the church, but to unite the church and to bring us into his family. Remember, as Paul said, that Jesus is the Christ, Remember that Jesus is Christos, the anointed one, the promised one. He's the Messiah. He is the one who came to bring you life by putting on flesh and letting somebody else take his life. Remember that Jesus came to build a kingdom, a new kingdom. A kingdom that isn't always tearing people down, but building up a new kind of human. And our job is to do the same, to build a new kind of kingdom. And you can build kingdoms by tearing down old ones, or you can build kingdoms by building a better one. I just want to tell you, I think that the best way to do this is to build better ones and not focus so much on tearing down old ones. See, that's the foundation, because if we don't get that, we will fall for the same trap that the church is falling into. And here it is, charge them before God. See it? Not to quarrel about words. Which does no good for the hearer, but only ruin, uh, Which does no good, but only ruins the hearer. The modern-day translation of this: Tell those idiots to stop quote-tweeting everybody's bad theology on Twitter. <laughs> right? Can I tell you how much wisdom there is in this statement because it creates such destruction? Our words matter. See whether you think so or not. There is always an audience watching, and you normally don't know that they are there. Listen. In Paul's day, here's what was happening, context, okay? They would create these big theological arguments where they would sit together and they would debate using these big fancy words that nobody knew and nobody cared about, but it showed that they went to an elite university like the Harvard of the South, Georgia Southern University, and because they had a great you know, academic prowess. Everybody would look at them and they would say, man, they made that guy look real dumb. And at the end of the day, you know who looked dumb? The church. Because as they're fighting with one another, everybody's looking on and they're like, they're they're no different than we are. Listen, we tend to do the same thing in different ways. Sometimes it's even less about what we say and it's more about how we're perceived. When it comes to moral issues that we know we're right on but we don't leave with grace and we're all truth. right? Or when we're selective about what we decide to talk about in those moments. Here's what I know. People are always listening. They're listening to how we respond, what we say. And the the question we have to ask ourselves, listen, is should I even say anything at all? I jokingly say all the time, my favorite proverb is this, even a fool sounds smart when he doesn't open his mouth. Like, I need to think about that. Here's my question. Why do you feel the need to have to respond? You ever ask yourself that? as you're sitting there typing it away, look, I'm going to get them. Why, why do you feel the need that you have to respond? You know why I think you do? It's the same reason for me, because I feel like I have the moral high ground, because I feel like I sit outside of the seat of it, sinner. I feel like I'm right, and you're wrong. About 10 years ago, I, I had the opportunity. I was on a subway in Um, New York City and in Jamaica, Queens, uh, I'm talking to this guy on the subway named Muhammad, and he asked me to come do a debate with his imam at a mosque. You know what you never turn down? Doing a debate with an imam at a mosque. I was like, sure, I'll be there. Show up, there's a massive crowd of Muslim people there. And it's just me. Me and all the Middle Eastern Muslims, and we're sitting there talking, and we're talking about Jesus, and we're going back and forth. And about five minutes into the conversation, I realized I'm not talking to the imam, he care less what I'm saying. He wasn't going to change his mind. I was talking to the crowd, and they were all listening. And it was just such an example of that's what life tends to look like. They're listening to see not is he right or is he wrong, but is he respectful or is he a jerk? Is he creating the caricature that actually I think that, that he is? Ray Ortland, a pastor, listen to what he says. He says the greatest threat to a typical church is not the adulterer, but the gossip who may be outwardly blameless, but he's inwardly ravenous. Y'all, the greatest threats to the church are subtle. They cut deep because they mask themselves in moral superiority. That's the greatest threat. Do you realize that? Maybe somebody in this room, hopefully not, but maybe somebody in this room might commit adultery. Every one of us in this room will fall trapped to being that second one. I think Paul cared about this stuff. I think Jesus cares about this stuff. I think the church is supposed to be a refuge for broken people, a place where we can come and be united about what we are for and not argue about what we are against. Y'all, we need to spend way more time getting the gospel right than criticizing culture and people we don't agree with. Verse 15, do your best to present yourself To God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. All right, again, this one's obvious, but let me make the point here. We need to be more worried about our own hearts than everybody else's, right? The BSV version of this, the Billy Standard version says, mind your own business and worry about yourself. The Jesus translation is this. Hey, why don't you worry about the log that's in your own eye before taking the speck out of your brother's? All right, again, context. There were false teachers infiltrating the church at Ephesus at this time. They were doing some pretty bad stuff, but here's what I find fascinating. Paul doesn't discuss them. Paul doesn't worry about the false teachers in this section. What does he do is he tells them to remind yourself. He's more concerned about us than he is about them. Paul's first concern is, do we get this right? That last phrase, handling the word rightly, rightly handling the word, you see that? That, that, that word there, it, it, it means to make a straight path or a straight road. It, it's actually where we get the word ortho from. Think about orthopedics to make something straight, orthodontics to make your crooked teeth straight again, right? It's where we get the word orthodoxy. What he's saying is the, your job Your job is to make the pathway to Jesus straight by handling God's word rightly. Paul is saying we need to do our best to get God's word right. Listen, the greatest weapon that we have against all this foolishness is to know the the word of God rightly. Here's what I mean I'm about to step on your toes, if I haven't already. You ready? If your view of the gospel creates hate in your heart for other people, you don't understand the gospel. If your theology leads you to build walls instead of bridges, you don't understand the gospel. If your theology is about hanging out with people in a certain political party because you think that they have the moral superiority, you don't understand the gospel. Are you tracking with me? God's church, understanding God's word, what it first does is it humbles you. It humbles you. It humbles you because understanding the gospel means that every single one of us are in need of a savior. Good theology is more about knowing God's word and applying God's word than it is about going to school and getting a degree in big words. I love the way that John Owen, the Puritan, says it. The seed of every sin is in every human heart. What that does is good theology makes you reflect on your own heart to say that I am just like you. And maybe I should give you the benefit of the doubt. So the next time you look down on somebody that you think is worse than you, I just want to tell you, you might not be applying the gospel rightly. Listen, when you get the gospel right, it's super hard to look down on others because you're going to spend the majority of your time looking up in gratitude to Jesus. So what if we spent our time working on doing our best to present ourselves to God and less time fixing the world? Think about that. What if the way that we fix the world is that we had thousands, matter of fact, actually I think the last billions of people who love Jesus that live in a countercultural way, who lovingly serve Jesus because we're worried about ourselves more and we point people to a better kingdom. What if we did that instead of always critiquing culture? Here's what we need. We need to spend our time loving the world, not critiquing culture. That's what the world needs more than anything. Again, I don't want to spend my whole time on a tangent, but don't lose the point. Paul's point is that the church needs, more than anything, is God's word. We need the truth of God's word. You see, if the church 2,000 years ago was going to survive, it needed faithful people who would handle God's word rightly and then faithfully train others to do the same thing. Can I just tell you that's why we teach the Bible here? It's not always popular. I could come in here and I could give you seven ways to a better life and let you pat yourself on the back and go out of this room with one little nugget of truth and then come back the next week. But you know what? I just don't think God's all that concerned with our happiness. I think God's concerned about building a better kingdom. I think God's concerned with our holiness. I think God's concerned with changing the world and showing the world that your ultimate joy is not in your circumstantial happiness, but in your eternal joy that's found in him. Paul is saying, remind them of the gospel, and every waking minute of your life, learn how to handle God's word rightly. Can I just ask you, how much time do you spend trying to handle God's word rightly? How much time do you spend trying to know Jesus? Like God wrote you a book about himself, and he has revealed eternity to you. Can I just ask you, how do you know what I'm telling you right now is accurate? Do you just take my word for it? Do you check me? Do you know God's word deep enough to be able to call those things out? Here it is. If the church is going to survive for the next 2,000 years, we need people who love Jesus and know his word. That's how it's gonna happen. We need people who know God's word so well that, that they eat it, they sleep it, they breathe it. When people cut you, you bleed Jesus. So Paul tells Timothy, we have to know God's word rightly, and here's the next one, verse 16. Look at it. But avoid a reverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Let me let me apply this. Do your words lead people closer to Jesus or further away? At the end of the day, that's the point. You can sit in a small group, you can show up here on Sundays, you can read your Bible, and if your Bible doesn't change who you are and how you speak, then what does it matter? Again, I'm I'm not trying to rant the entire time, but honestly, I I kind of am. I think sometimes we need to sit in this for a moment and just ask some of these deeper questions. I'm going to use some big words, but write this down. One of the most destructive things that can happen is a church who has a lot of orthodoxy without much orthopraxy. Let me break this down for you. Ortho means right path, right? Right? Doxa, it's the Greek word for worship or theology. Orthodoxy is right theology or right worship. If you have a church with a lot of right theology without orthopraxy, which means right practice, it's destructive. Why? Because theology without practice leads people to destruction. It's the ultimate, ultimate, pharisaical, destructive force in the world. If our theology doesn't lead us to more godliness, then it's not good theology. See, Paul is using a play on words here with this irreverent babble because he's saying that even though you know the correct things to say, it's not going anywhere. Like, who cares that you can break down the nuances of theology if you're still a jerk? Jesus called those people Pharisees, and he didn't like them a whole lot. Right? Good theology, our theology without practice, leads people to destruction. That's what he's saying, isn't it? Guys, let's be honest with you. I'd rather you not come to church here than come here and fake it. I'd rather you not come to church here than act like you're somebody else and walk in here and put on your mask because we are doing more destruction to culture by faking it than living in our struggles and letting the word of God transform us. Listen, I don't think culture, and this is one of those big statements, I don't think culture was the problem in America over the last 100 years. I think cultural Christianity was. You know why? I might get in trouble for this. Because I don't think cultural Christianity had the guts to speak out on the injustices because it costs too much. Listen, if the church was being the church, we wouldn't have had racial issues. Right? We we wouldn't have had, we won't have these social media wars. Because we would have stood up against these big problems in America. So, we like to put the blame on culture, but the reality is, and I think Paul is saying this, let's worry about ourselves. Here's what I know. The church doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to be real. That's it. It needs to be filled with humans who are struggling together, people who love Jesus and are walking together through the good, the bad, and the ugly of life. If we are here to create an image of perfection, listen, we're at the wrong church. Because I just be honest with you, I'm not perfect. You come spend two days at my house and you'll be like, bro, I don't know why they let you on that stage. I tell you that all the time because I want you to know we're walking through the struggle of life together. And I want this to be a refuge, a place where you can do that because it's in this place that you become godly. I don't want the appearance of godliness. I want to be godly. And the only way that's going to happen is if we walk through and honestly talk about our struggles together. Verse 17, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened now again theologically here they're not saying that Jesus didn't raise from the dead you need to kind of understand what's happening they're saying that you won't raise from the dead in a physical body they were the first Gnostics Meaning that this is very, um, if if you want to be a little Bible nerd for a second, Platonic view. Plato had this view that the body and the soul were two different things. And when you died, your soul went to heaven and your body stayed here. Jesus never says that. Jesus says that it's almost life after death back to life, where your whole body and soul are united together and you live on earth with Jesus for all of eternity. They are saying that's not true. Basically, they're saying that Jesus got it wrong. And what happens? They're upsetting the faith of some. See that? There are things, there are two things I wanna point out here. Number one is this, your words are powerful. Your words are powerful, y'all. Sometimes I don't think we realize how powerful our words are. You have the power to build people up Simply by being an encourager. I've told you this before. There are actual psychological studies out there that say the more we continually encourage one another, the more powerful and, more, um, and, and the more efficient and the happier we become. Did you know that smiling is contagious, like sneezing? Like my wife just sneezed 46 times up here. I'm surprised I haven't sneezed. Or if I say, bless you, before she sneezes, she won't. Smiling's the same way. You realize that, right? They say, if I smile, you'll smile. If I laugh, you'll laugh. When we speak life into people, we build them up in, spe- in, in powerful, powerful ways. So be specific. Be specific in your encouragement. Like I think about Chris, my brother in the back. And when I watch him smile with his kids, man, he, he, he comes alive when he's around Ben and James. And then when he's around them and I watch him play with them, it, it shows me just how amazing of a dad he is. And Chris, I just want to tell you, you're a great dad. And I appreciate you because you've taught me a lot about being a dad as I've watched you be a dad to your kids. Now listen, every bit of what I just said was true and that kind of encouragement will make him go home and be a good dad. What would, what would it look like if we did that to one another? Now, the words we say, they have the opposite effect too. Your words shape people in ways that either build them up or they tear them down. You remember sticks and stones, they break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Dumbest song ever. Words cut so deep that they have the ability to damage you forever. Listen, if your words didn't matter, psychology wouldn't be a profession a profession. They matter so much. Every word either has the ability to refresh the soul or to destroy the person. And I know that firsthand because I've been on the receiving end and on the giving end of that. We say this around here a lot. Celebrate to replicate. Celebrate to replicate. The things that you want to celebrate in the culture that you're building, just talk about them a lot. What if we celebrate what God was doing in his word, in his church, and in each other's lives? The problem is, is that Hymenaeus and Philetus were intentionally trying to divide the church. Now again, good Bible study, you might be asking, whoa, 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 Billy, how do you know that? Great question. In the book of 1 Timothy, Hymenius was hanging out with a dude named Alexander, and they were doing the same exact thing, and Paul said that they needed to excommunicate them from the church because they were unbelievers who were trying to destroy the church. So something happened to Alexander, and Hymeneus decides that he could build a crowd and he finds this guy named Philetus, and they're doing the same exact thing. Listen, bad theology pulls people away. See, the thing that you need to realize is just as much as good words bring life, false statements bring death. It kills church culture. It destroys people's confidence in God, and it divides the church in ways that no one wins. And there will always be a crowd for controversy. That's the worst part about all of it. It's the saddest part. It's not hard to build a crowd to be against something. Here's what I need you to say. God has entrusted you with the gospel, and you need to bear the weight of that responsibility. Whether or not you're the person who stands up on this stage and teaches God's word, or you don't talk to people very much at all because you're an extreme introvert, You have been given the greatest gift in the world, and your job is to steward it in everyday life because you have way more influence than you think you do. Here's what I think. I think there are two ways that this happens, that we become like Hymenius and Violetus. The first one, the first one is, I don't know, you're just a destructive jerk. I actually don't think that that's the, the greatest way this happens I think the greatest way this happens is we just perpetuate bad theology. Sometimes somebody teaches us something, but we don't check up on it. We don't do our own study, and eventually our lack of discipleship creates shallow believers who eventually miss the mark, and they start teaching the same exact bad theology that they were taught. So at City Church, we want to teach the Bible, and we want to be very clear on what we are for so that we don't fall away for anything. I want to be real quick here, but let me tell you what we're for here at City Church. There's three things. Letter A is this. We are for Jesus and his word. It's really that clear. We're for Jesus and his word. That means that we will never compromise the gospel. And and if anybody swerves from the truth, then they've lost the focus. But our focus is if we just teach God's word and we do it faithfully, we don't have to teach whenever any controversy comes up because the Bible hits them all anyway. Letter B is we're for people. We often say around here that people are the mission. That's why we serve people and not policies, which means that we will do anything we can short of bad theology to fill this place up with people because we believe that this is the best place in the world that you can be, right? You hear Jesus, you're in community, and you grow in your faith. And let letter see. we're for missions. We believe that God's church is his plan A, and we want to start planting churches all over the world. We want to go deep in our partnerships with just a few people who love Jesus by planting churches. If you don't, by the way, if you don't get this, it's our mission statement, theology, community, and mission. That's it. That's who we are for. These are the things that we're for. Guys, you need to know that because if you, if you don't understand what we're for, we will become a visionless church that will be hijacked by any agenda that comes under the sun. Listen, City Church, we've said it here and we'll say it here continually. There are a lot of good things that we can be about but we decided to say no to a lot of good things so that we can be the thing that God has called us to. One of the best pieces of advice I can give you is this. Not everything under heaven has your name on it. So what if you and I understood exactly what we are for? What are you for in your family? What are the non-negotiables that you have for your family and your life and the things that you do? Understanding those things will help you say no to certain things so you can say yes to God things. Because honestly, we have every opportunity under the sun and we have to choose what we're going to do. So what are you for? All right, last verse. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. Now keep this in mind. You see the quotations here. Paul is quoting something. The Lord knows who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. What's Paul quoting from? This is kind of fascinating. Paul is quoting from number 16. And in number 16, there's a story about Moses. Oh, this isn't in my notes, but I found this cool. Just last week, archaeologists found the oldest piece of the Bible ever found that dates back to Moses, a Hebrew text. I just think that's really cool. And it actually validates the validity of, I said validates the validity, yeah, of the Bible. In Moses, in number 16, there's a fight that goes on, and they don't want Moses to lead anymore. So there's about 250 people that come to Moses, and they say he's not a leader, and they want to rebel against him and move on. Remember this storyline. They're in the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness, because um, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, and as Moses comes down off the mountain, Aaron, who's the priest, is making false gods for his people, and it's a bad deal. So that generation has to spend 40 years in the wilderness. And again, by the way, here's here's what I think we often forget. When you derail God's plan for your life, you tend to end up in a wilderness. That's just, that's just true. So they're in this wilderness. They don't like Moses, and they try, to, they try to dethrone him. God comes up to him. He says, gather the 250 people together, and let's have a conversation. The earth opens up. The 250 people die. Period. End of story. Paul's quote. <laughs> You're like, what does that have to do with anything, right? It's really a good warning. You know what the warning is for all of us? Don't mess with God's church. That's what Paul's saying. Don't mess with God's church. Good theology matters. You have massive influence over God's people. Don't make God's ground open up over you. Jesus says the same thing. The book of Revelation says he'll take away your lampstand. By the way, all the churches in the book of Revelation, their lampstands that were taken away go to the Middle East, to Syria today and see how the church is doing there it is a fair warning it's one that we should take and it's not harsh but it's bold and listen don't go to war against Jesus especially when you claim to be a part of his church that's the warning don't mess with Jesus he is the foundation of his church don't mess with him now there's two things in this quote that I think are just really important you see the quote here listen number one is this is the Lord knows who are his love that. There's, there's so much comfort in knowing that God is sovereign, isn't there? God knows that you're in a battle. Because sometimes if you're like me in my life, I'm like, God, where are you? God, do you even know? Trust me, we've been there, right? We, God, we moved here. We planted this church and then the pandemic and all the other stuff. And like, where are you? And God's like, I'm, I'm here. I've always been here. I know you. I love you, and I know that you were mine. Just keep going. Here's number two. We have a responsibility to depart, to depart from sin. That's what he says. That's the second part. God knows who are his, and we need to walk away from sin. Guys, healthy things grow, and the way that they grow is by actively walking in holiness. I know, I, I know I've done this illustration, but it's been a long time. So let, let, me, let me put this out here for you. This originates with C.S. Lewis, but imagine that there's a fish in a fishbowl right here. And the fish is swimming around in the fishbowl and he's looking at you, sipping on your latte that Chandler made, and he's sitting there thinking, man, I hate being in this fishbowl. Like the only positive to being in this fishbowl is that the sounds of that guy on the stage is muffled and I don't have to listen to that guy babble. But other than that, I'm so restricted. There's all these rules. I can't move. I got to get out of here. So what does the fish do? Is He jumps. But the fish doesn't jump to his life and freedom. He jumps to his death. And here's what Lewis says, is that your greatest freedom, is life, and freedom in life is not doing whatever you want to do. It's actually living in the original design that you were created for. Listen to me, you were created to flourish as an image bearer of God, to walk with Him in holiness and happiness, to walk away from sin, because every single time that we walk into those things, we're jumping out of the bowl and we think we're jumping to freedom, but take my word for it, because I've done it all, it only leads to death. One of the greatest myths is that God is trying to restrict your freedoms. Jesus loves you way too much for that. Jesus is trying to make you come alive. He wants you to swim in the pools that you were designed for. And the church is supposed to be the place that we learn to become truly human, to flourish. See, that's why unity is so important. So let me remind you of these things. Don't fight about words, but lean into the gospel. You will come alive and so will everybody else. That's what Paul spends so much time trying to stress it matters. The church is creating an environment where we can thrive. City Church, the most precious and the most powerful story on the planet is the gospel, and we have that story. The gospel changes everything. It changes who we are. It makes us more joyful. It allows us to swim in the waters of freedom, and it means that we don't need to spend all of our time trying to critique culture and talk about what we disagree with. It means that the most powerful thing we can do is live as new people, People who know that there's a better kingdom that we belong to and we're building that kingdom now. I'm just telling you, if you will take this word today and apply it to your life, apply it to your social media accounts to begin to be known for who you are for rather than what you are against, you will change people's perception of the church and you will make this place beautiful because you'll start pointing people to the king. That's Paul's plan for the church. That's his plan for us.